want to go to the metaverse to be yourself, to see your world? Or do you want to go to the metaverse and hang out because you can be someone you're not and be in a more fantastic sci-fi? friends, welcome to the Metacast Roundtable by Navic. And today we're joined by yet another, another new face on the episode, um, Joost van Trunner. Yes. Yeah? Yes. I like it. Let's go with that. I forgot that I didn't ask how to pronounce uh, the investor, how to pronounce the company you're an investor in. It's all gook. It's New Brooklyn, we just said. New Brooklyn. Okay. And you're also a book author. That's amazing. Thanks. I, uh, I like words. <laughs> and we're also joined by Aaron Bush, co-founder of Navic. Hey, Aaron. Hey there. Hey there. Happy to be here. Yeah. So uh, as when we have someone new on the on the podcast, I always ask for a thirty second um, small intro. So mm-hmm. if you could do that, yes, yeah. Sure thing. So my name is Yost. I uh, am both uh, an academic in that I teach at uh, the business school at NYU. I teach on the business of video games, and I think that's a lot of fun to kind of figure out the intersection between uh, creativity and commerce, to put it that way. And then I like to build things, uh, particularly data companies. So I built data, uh, a data firm called Superdata a few years ago, sold it to Nielsen, and since then I've been investing and advising a few other data companies. And I like sort of putting the, the rationalization around business models and revenue models. So, so that intersection is where I spend most of my time. And I love working with uh, creative teams, obviously. I think it's really knowing full well that I can't make games for shit myself. Uh, I always like to be a contributor or a supporter of that effort. So, so that's where I usually come in. Well, your newsletter is great. Thanks. I appreciate that. I've, I realize I've always been pronouncing it as super used. It was actually, actually super used. It's super used. It's a, there's a story about that too, but it's a... You know, the, the newsletter is really an extension of the classroom and the boardroom conversations I have because they tend to be about the same topic. You know, so you'll talk to like a big company and they've read the news too, as, as well as my students would have. And they each have a different perspective. And I try to kind of cater to both of them by writing it down on a weekly basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a lot of fun to do that. I really enjoy that. I always chuckle with your play pass section at the end. You like that it's section? Good. Like it is good. There's some sarcasm alerts there that I really enjoy. Yes, that's, that's my one advice. <laughs> so if there's one game that you say, this is a game I'm playing, it's my favorite game, what is that? Currently, it's Halo, Halo Infinite. It's, uh, the multiplayer is very fun. It's very slick. Uh, and, you know, I don't suck as much in this one as opposed to every other multiplayer game out there right now. So, and I've, you know, I've been... And so I'm also move. So the other thing to know is like I'm, I'm moving next week, and I have two kids, and so moving with children is like it's like you're like a goddamn circus. So I, so that means that for the foreseeable future, I won't have dedicated set up like a big screen and a console. So I'm just getting my hours in, and I'm really enjoying Halo right now. Is the grappling hook available now in Halo? The grappling hook is available. It's uh, okay. That's one of the favorite features. <laughs> Yeah, I saw a video. Are you going to try to play on uh, Game Pass via browser while your, you know, PC TV or whatever you play on is, is you yes. know, being being moved? 
I saw the news. I read it this morning. I'm very excited. So I have an office 10 minutes from my current place. And, you know, I have my controllers here and I can log in, uh, do it that way. But, you know, first person shooters really need to be played with a mouse and a keyboard. Uh, I have both a Mac and a PC in the office, but I've, I want all of I want everything. You know, I'm, I've come to that age in my life where it's like, look, I, I don't want to have to negotiate all the technology. I need it to be invisible and work all the time. So this whole cloud vision, I'm 100% in. I have Stadia, I have Luna, I have all of it. I just want to live my life and so yes wow. i'll be looking forward to doing the the pc interface on the game pads. i think oh, you're the um, only person i've ever heard say they have luna so you're you're living on the <laughs> the bleeding edge somewhere that's funny you know i'm an omnivore like a, you know equal opportunity offender i guess in cloud gaming it'll be interesting to discuss Aaron's topic about about meta um just before we move on it's time to spread a little bit more love i know i mentioned in the past episode just want to call out is a happy lgbtqia plus pride month and also happy juneteenth the celebration was in the past 19th of june if you don't know about the holiday um, research it it's really good to know about these things and i hope everyone enjoyed or is enjoying the celebrations um oh before I introduce my topic, I want to do a little survey here. So, Aaron, what well, what's your favorite platform to play games on? My favorite platform? Yeah. Uh, I would say right now, I think I prefer my PS5. And um, I like playing on the big screen, and I like the exclusives. And I think in this generation, the controller uh, kind of takes it up a notch. It's pretty pretty cool in how it rumbles in different ways. Okay. Okay. Uh, yes. Uh, with Aaron, it's the dedicated hardware. Like I, um, I tried so much over the last couple of years to have like one device to do all of it. That sort of Swiss pocket knife mindset. You know, across the board. So I'm the same with like watches now. Like I just have like a, a device that tells time. at just one goddamn thing. It's amazing. Like it just simplifies your life. And so dedicated hardware. At the end of the day, you play for a couple of hours. It's just like calming. There's no notifications coming in in the top right. There's nobody yelling in your ear, but you know, whatever. And it, so that dedicated focus, uh, I think really uh, brings me back to the roots of console gaming. And then I don't have a PlayStation 5, I have a, the Xbox. Uh, and it's, you know, it's just amazing. This generation is beautiful. It's seamless. If you hardwire that into a f fiber optic net here in, in Brooklyn, it's, it's you know, latency is ultra low. It's, it's an amazing experience. How about wow. you, Maria? Well, I made a finding this weekend where <laughs> I was in my living room chilling. I had my PS5 ready with amazing games. And I thought, oh, I just really want to play a mobile game. And then I played mobile games for a few hours. And I was very happy because of it. <laughs> I was happy. It well, gave I'm you happy joy. for you, Maria. I don't think there's any wrong <laughs> answers in that question. But I mean... PS5 is pretty awesome. I would pick Well, that. let me let me ask it. Let yeah. me ask a question. Like so so during the pandemic, I had a whole bunch of people in my network that were building their own PCs. And not just, you know, grown men who work in IT, also like their kids, right? And so and that was sort of that became like this hobby project that people did at home. Mm. Did you? Did you build your own? Did you spend a lot of time and money just getting PC. All the components again? Yeah, just like a, building a PC. Did, did either of you do that? No, I honestly just prefer mobile because I I rent and I have to move often. And then, you mm -hmm. know, having a PC is just not an easy setup. 
I prefer to be able to snuggle under the covers at <laughs> night and just play on my mobile and have it really close to my face so I can see all of the details. <laughs> um, and with this lead, <laughs> so I brought today, just looking at the initial game launch results for Diablo Immortal, uh, I brought up a topic a couple of weekends ago where I was talking about how pay to win it was. I thought, so I thought I should do a redemption story and bring the amazing results that the game has had today. Um, and then I'm also going to talk about a small, you know, we compare the revenue of Diablo Immortal, but I want to talk about a small mobile game that I'm really enjoying. It's a casual racing game. And I'll just skim over it pretty quickly because, um, I don't know, Aaron, yes, have you played Off-Road Unchained? I have not. No. No, okay. Tell I will. us. Enlighten us. Well, I'll start with, uh, I'll start with Diablo Immortal first um, for this redemption, this redemption story. So it has been coined as the biggest launch in the franchise history, but it's the lowest rated Blizzard game by players on Metacritic. Uh, mm. Apparently this hasn't really affected the performance though, because it's amazing. So in the first week of the game launch, they had around 7.3 million downloads on mobile. It generated approximately 14.5 million um, on mobile, so iOS and Android. The United States accounted for 45% of the total revenue, followed by South Korea and Japan. Mm. And then in the second week of the game launch, they reached over 24 million in revenue. Um, and to do a bit of comparison for, for scale, so the revenue per download of Diablo Immortal is around $2.20. Um, if you look at Genshin Impact Mobile, that is $3.45. Uh, uh, if mm -hmm. we look at Apex Legends Mobile, $0.34. So Diablo is doing very well. What do you think? Unexpected? I mean, I think it's I think it's predictable to some extent because it's a huge IP, and I think they did a good job with the game and getting people into it. it it's like, you know, it's a very much a Diablo game um, mm -hmm. <laughs> that you can play for many hours before a lot of the, you know, the the paid need really starts to hit my my take is that like i think it's it's definitely a good launch launch it's definitely apples to oranges though comparing it with like a premium game launch um but mm -hmm. my, my take is actually like i don't know if it's like a good enough or like sustainable enough launch and there's actually a chance that blizzard wanted it to be better because if you're if you're a company of activision blizzard size and you make you know eight ten billion dollars in annual revenue you need a launch like this um or game like this that'll be a staple of its portfolio for many years to have a like a clear path towards many hundreds of millions if not like a billion dollars and and annual revenue and for context um you know call of duty mobile also an unfair comparison but you know it's just the other big similar ish kind of franchise mm -hmm. launch and Activision Blizzard. They make maybe like a quarter billion dollars a year. So Diablo could be um, on that track, but it'll need those revenue figures to hold. And if you look at Sensor Tower data, um, you know, I just, I was looking yesterday and the downloads have kind of fallen off a cliff. And to some degree, mm -hmm. that's obviously expected. That happens with every game launch, but it happened really fast. They now get, you know, maybe 60, 70K downloads per day. Uh, that's probably mm -hmm. going to fall some more. So I'm curious to see where it, it normalizes. Um, and it'll obviously start getting more expensive to do customer acquisition too once the Diablo mm -hmm. fan base is kind of tapped out, which they might be, you know, about at, at this point. 
Um, and then the second thing, the like the daily revenue has also fallen maybe in half from its peak so far, from maybe a million dollars a day to a bit over half a million per day. And maybe that data is off, and Sensor Tower will will need to update it. I'm not I'm not positive, but you know that still is very good. Like that's a that's never most games would love. That's a, maybe like a hundred eighty million dollar annual run rate or so. But I still don't know if that's good enough mm-hmm. for Activision um mm-hmm. blizzard and kind of the last thing i'll i'll say is um you know what could push both of those numbers up um is uh, a successful launch in china where games like this often do well and you know it was developed by netties partially with that in mind i'm sure but you know the launch was just announced that the chinese launch was indefinitely delayed uh, mm-hmm. right before it was supposed to happen. Um, and mm-hmm. I also read that Diablo's, like Immortals, like social accounts in China were silenced recently. So I don't know what's going on. Um, I don't have any special expertise or insight into that. But, you know, it is a potential concern for just like a further global rollout to kind of hit some of the goals that they were aiming for. But so, yeah, no surprise that it was big. But I still sort of have questions about where it'll ultimately sit compared to the really high expectations that a company of this scale would have on this game. Mm. Yeah, I yes. like that. I, I, I agree with you on a lot of this. The, um, I'd say that the one thing that was entirely predictable was the fact that PC gamers you know, and fans of the franchise would take a huge shit on this. It's the you know, observation that you have these dedicated franchise fans, and they, of course, will find a lot of this to be outrageous. They're like, well, it's not their usual format, and like the monetization me- mechanics are different. Uh, you know, it's sort of made for a global audience. So, so there are some distinct changes that happen when you release a franchise that is supposed to cater to hundreds of millions of users across mobile and other platforms at the same time. And so they are naturally going to then, of course, express this through Metacritic, where you see a very low score. And it's like, well, but it's a really good game. It's just trying to cater to a larger audience. It's a little bit like um, the same thing that you notice when, uh, like, uh, I, I don't know much about American football as an immigrant, but I've learned that American football used to be sort of like this blue collar thing. And then it became this very expensive game, right? And so the nature of the game as it's trying to uh, cater to a mainstream audience changes. And the fan base often finds that sort of like a, you know, a bastardization of the whole effort. And so Diablo fans went the same way. Of course, those were the really sort of like, you have that dark lore. It's like this sort of uh, really deep uh, engagement that these people have had for this whole time. And then to put it in a mobile context or make it mobile accessible and, and, and globally interesting, you know, naturally they alienate that that hardcore fan base and they have a hard time with it. But the, you know, but that's sort of, that's between the creatives and the consumers, but I think the the third party there is the publisher, right? And if you look at the share price for Activision, it it moved zero, right? It, like the launch of Diablo Mobile, which was this long announced and delayed and then delayed again, kind of big franchise. It was supposed to be this big deal, right? And it's as it's going through all this turmoil internally with its own work culture, with the acquisition from Microsoft, like it could really use a hard win, like a solid win that says, look, we know we have trouble, but look at this amazing stuff. Neither the, the player base or the investors really valued any of this. And so it's a little disappointing, right? This, this, this should have carried the company more, this could have carried the company more, but it's the evidence isn't there. Uh, so while I 
I'm sure that it will make plenty of money. I don't know that it's going to be the same success as Call of Duty Mobile, uh, which seems mm-hmm. much more attuned to, you know, instant play when you're kind of outside, which, you know, but exactly what mobile gamers would want from this. And at the same time, it's like, this should have been a bigger deal for Activision. So it's, you know, it's a bit of a, it's not a loss or it's not a, it's not a, a disappointment in that sense, but, you know, we've waited for a long time and, and you know, it, it's kind of a fizzle and not really a, anything more than that for me. Yeah, so I don't know if that's too negative for you, but that's, that's, that's <laughs> what I'm saying. Yeah, we'll keep, we'll keep an eye on it. It might be interesting in a, in a few months to, to go back to the topic and see how it performed um, a few months after, after the launch. Yeah, for me, it's just a reminder as a game dev, look at the data. And sometimes there can be an uproar in the community and socials of, you know, pay to win and all of this. But then if you look at the, at the revenue, just like we, you know, Aaron and, oh, oh gosh, now I forget who was on the episode. <laughs> That's terrible. Uh, but yeah, the prediction was that it wouldn't really affect because mobile gamers are used to that kind of mechanics in, in the game. So yeah, redemption, redemption story to the topic that I, I brought last time. Yeah, and it was smart of them to announce Diablo 4 or show more the gameplay <laughs> basically right after Diablo Immortal launched to kind of give, you know, what, you know, the traditional Diablo audience a bit more. Mm-hmm. And I still think, um, I mean, they can learn and improve. They still have a big audience base to to work with and mm-hmm. improve monetization methods. China could even come in clutch at some point too and provide a second wind. That is mm-hmm. very meaningful. I just have no idea what dynamics are really at play there. Um, but one, one question for you, Maria, because uh, I've been playing D- Diablo Immortal a bit more and just been thinking about the monetization methods. And I'm curious like how it maybe has an effect on some of the numbers here. And so a couple things. One, um, I still haven't spent a single dollar on this game. And part of it is just because I'm slow to get through things because I play you know, a lot of things. I just haven't put an insane mm-hmm. amount of time into Diablo. And so I'm I'm almost wondering if like there is like a revenue lag from just how long it takes for a ton of players to actually get to the point where they would mm-hmm. spend more money. Um, so that's mm-hmm. one. And then second, I it seems like, and you outlined this pretty well, that most of the monetization in Diablo pretty much is just around like gems, that, which mm-hmm. then like kind of roll into other things. Um, but it, I, I I'd almost wonder if it's like a mistake that it's that it's only that really, and it's not really anything more, just closer to like the 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 stuff that players would find most valuable which is like you know the cool gear or extra content things things like that and so i'm i'm wondering if and that just is probably a byproduct of not like uh testing enough um out in the wild before they like push for a big global launch i would guess um or just the acknowledging they'll figure it out but anyways i'm wondering if they can adapt um, and kind of add some more monetization mechanics there over time that kind of tap more into what people want. Because also, like, the the RPD, like, I actually thought it would be better than it than it has been. And I'm blanking on what it is. Maybe you would know, Maria. But I'm just kind of curious to get your thoughts yes. on, like... 2.20. Yeah, two, 220, um, which isn't bad. I just kind of thought it would be, for a game that's pushing for such insane monetization, uh, that it would be um, better than that. But I'm curious, Maria, if you... After like you having played it more too, if you 
just how you think about some of what I said about like, is there a lag when monetization hits like in the numbers that we should be watching for? And should they like do more in their monetization mechanics to unlock more upside? I agree with you. I remember reading when the, when it launched that they will introduce cosmetics in the future. So I believe that will come to the game and I think that will make a difference. Probably. Because you want to look cool. It's a show it's a big show off game. It's very PvP and you encounter other players. You know, I, that was why I was playing on the weekend in the cozy um living room. And it was just cool. Like other people would cross my path. I'd follow them around, look at their character, mm -hmm. look at their powers. And I think there's a uh, spend def to, to be gained there. Mm -hmm. I do think that they are doing a good job with trying to get me to convert for the first time. You know, they present, I've been holding off to see how far will they push it just to learn. Um, I like to learn how other games try to push the conversion. So I've been holding off and they have been presenting me with tastier offers over time. So it does seem As like in, they're at least like, trying to optimize if you don't convert. Yeah, I'm curious, like what is what is starting to grab your attention more to like convert you for the first time? Cosmetics, uh, that's my persona. If I yeah. can look cool, you know, I'm not cool in real life. So if I can look cool in the game, I'll spend <laughs> I'll spend money on it. You're very cool, Maria. Oh, thanks, you can be cool. So self-deprecating. So sorry no, is the English is the English humor. I'm sorry. No, it's just like no, but you're on this. You're this exciting podcast. You're very cool. No, but it's it's true though. It's like the the, the aesthetics and the uh, and the vanity items. That those are. I'm a sucker for those too. Like I can't help myself. That's that's the reason to grind, and that's the reason to put to take your wallet out every time. Mm. And I know I'm just conscious of the time, so I'll quickly move on to the Off-Road Unchained. So this is published by Red Bull Media, and it was developed by a studio called QAzima, who provide game dev. They've been providing services since 2004 and also developed Angry Birds Friends. So it's like a casual racing game. You can play it with one hand. So I was actually stuck in the queue to get into England at the airport for Border Force for maybe an hour or so. And I just play, I could play this game with one hand and still be paying attention enough to walk the queue and not step on people. And, you know, I think this is amazing as this is what a casual mobile game is meant to do. And, you know, I was looking at the performance of the game and its launch, and I was looking at the performance of the other very popular game uh, from the same series called Dirt Bike Unchained. So, you know, it might have a ceiling of maybe 2 million absolute revenue potentially. So, you know, I, I'm also curious if, if listeners are interested in us talking about these games that have very low revenue. Um, it's more talking about something that is nice and addictive to play, but doesn't really lead to, to performance in the end. Yeah, I'm curious, because I know you, you work at Hotch, which does a lot of racing games. Is there anything like from this game that is inspiring to you that you think like you could learn from and like apply to your own work in some way to level up, get smarter? I think racing is the kind of game genre where it's fun, but it's very difficult to find a meta and a balance that will lead to good performance and sustainable performance over time. Mm-hmm. And this is what you can see from this game. Like I'm completely hooked on the game. 
I play it in the morning during breakfast. I play it in the night before I go to sleep. I play it when I take breaks because it's just so much fun. And yet, I haven't paid. And、uh, looking at the launch data, seems like not many people are paying as well. I guess fun, but it's not hard enough to make me pay money for it. Yeah. And there's also some details in terms of the progression and the general monetization and, and UX of the game. But I won't go into it. It's、um, interesting. You know, I mean, the racing game genre in general, like it's it has like a an easy pickup sense to it, right?、Mm-hmm. But it, I don't think a lot of there's a, I don't think there's a lot of examples of mobile racing games that are particularly convincing. So it sounds like I haven't played this particular one, but. Yeah, it sounds what you're describing is a really sort of it's very casual, very accessible, but it has a lot of fun elements to it. In the same way that、uh, you know you would pick up I don't know some other sort of casual game on an on an iPhone.、Uh, you know, but that, here's the question for you: Is it then you kind of get into the mechanics, so it's easy to learn but difficult to master? Where you、uh, you know to get the three star rating, you have to kind of try a bunch of times to really. Knock it out of the park, just like you do with Angry、no. Birds or with Super Mario Run, or is there、no. is there some other mechanic there? It, I think, if you were very very competitive, there are ways to optimize, but the game doesn't push it, push you to do it. Or maybe、okay. I haven't reached the higher competitive leagues to even feel like I have to. Like the game makes me feel awesome,、mm-hmm. pretty much all the time. <laughs> so、like、it's in the theme, yeah. Oh yeah, sorry. Yeah, this is how you know how I live my life. Uh, but, so last last point, I had this shower thought, and I want to want to pass you. I'm starting to think that building the perfect mobile game is similar to building、uh, a profile in a dating app. I'll let that settle in. Oh boy! Can、okay. you explain? Like, I have well, no idea what to even comment on that. <laughs> so I've only had two mobile games that have. Have me completely hooked, and the way that I found them is that you have to. I, I had to try a lot of mobile games, and that's the beauty of mobile. You can install and uninstall very quickly, and just try different things. And there's always something new to try that's free to play,、mm-hmm. and so you can do that. You can do that a lot, and because there is so much availability out there, you need a mobile game that will capture you with the visuals from the start. Because you haven't settled into the mechanics yet, and so that's the first time that you meet that that game. You want to be impressed by it、um, to stick a little bit longer, and then you want it to be. Once you get past that stage, you want it to be interesting and easy to pick up, and gently takes you into getting to know the game further over time, and not just like overwhelm you with "this is everything in the game." I want to be taken step by step, and so it's like a dating app. Where you have to swipe a lot of profiles, you look at a person and then all of their photos, and then you describe a little bit about them, and then you get to know them better. Isn't it a great shower thought? Come on. So, th- so this is a, a a very self-incriminating question because I I've never used dating apps, <laughs> so <laughs> so I have to imagine what that's like, and then any actual first-hand knowledge is an immediate crime for me, but. There's, I do see the logic where it's like, what pulls you in, right? It's like, is、yeah. it deep, complex gameplay, or is it like, oh, this is cool and I feel nice, or I'm achieving something? I am,、um, I, I would go with the,、um, I would make a comparison with arcades, 
more than anything else where mm. you have to figure out within like 20 seconds what the like how do i play this goddamn thing because i'm in this place with lots of machines yelling at me play me play me and if i don't get immediately what the point is then i'll just move on to the next machine and so you do have to have that hook right away right which i imagine and this is the the part that's <laughs> slippery i imagine that once you find someone's profile it's like oh interesting they also like peanut butter or they're also really into you know air balloons and so now we have something in common that we can talk about and then we can explore the relationship further same thing with the game it's like here's a mechanic or here's a feature or here's something that i haven't seen mm -hmm. before so to that extent yes but you know so often like if i remember like even a game company like machine zone like you see a, a what is it, a game of war it's just like these were so complex like every time i immediately like you see really cool games and then you start them and it's basically sort of like a farmville with armies and you have to like set up your barracks and then you have to like get points over here to get your soldiers and then you have to transfer them and then you have to transact and upgrade like i'm tired i just wanted to shoot mm -hmm. things you know i just wanted to break something and move on with my life so i do i think that you're right i think also there's a lot of bad game design where they do it the other way around and that tends to turn off immediately so but you know a dating app is like, that's a really specific metaphor a specific comparison well, I think maybe the conversation actually segues nicely into Aaron's topic because this kind of mobile discoverability first impression that hooks you to spend a little bit more time on it might be seen in these VR gaming worlds. So Aaron, yeah. if you want to bring your topic. Yeah, so I want to talk about meta and uh, please excuse my longer than usual preamble, but there's a lot of there's a lot of context that's really interesting here. Um, so I want to talk about, you know, meta, what's changed at its reality labs over the past few months. And then um, we can discuss like what's new with the company's gaming initiative. So we covered meta and its metaverse ambitions in previous episodes, but um, my goal here is to cover some new ground and maybe offer some more nuance. So um, let's zoom back. Earlier this year, Meta made a string of noteworthy announcements. It dropped plans to build its own AR, VR operating system. It stopped designing its own in-house custom chips for its headsets. Um, and as was previously discussed here, uh, the company was very much ridiculed for its 47.5% take rate when Horizon, the company's social VR um, like app platform where users can create worlds and hang out got off the ground. So, you know, these all sound like very different topics, but I actually think there's a central takeaway that runs through it all here. And it's actually best described by looking at the horizon take rate criticism. And so a 47.5% take rate um, is pretty ludicrous and that's been discussed. But um, here's a detail that I think has been under discussed. It actually is two take rates. Um, so there's mm -hmm. a 30% take rate for uh, the Oculus now MetaQuest platform, which is specific to Meta's hardware, and another 17.5% take rate for Horizon, which is um, you know an app that can span platforms and live on non-MetaQuest devices too. And what it really highlights, especially when paired with the other announcements, is that Meta has had a strategy problem. It's been trying to have its cake and eat it too, meaning it's been trying to tackle 
extreme vertical integration on one hand, hence putting a lot of capital around a bunch of MetaQuest device-specific problems like the in-house custom chips and its own personal operating system. And on the Mm. other hand, it's trying to build software and apps that service the broader VR ecosystem, including non-meta devices. And it's really hard, if not impossible, to serve those two radically different approaches at the same time. And you often see this in companies with seemingly endless capital. They don't feel constraints, so they take too long to focus. And it's also you know, just a byproduct of the fact that it's kind of early in the maturity of the market to pick a path and stick to it. There's just risk there. So bottom line, you know, a focus strategy has been a big under-discussed problem um, with Meta, I think. But enter the more recent news. So Meta's core business of social apps is seeing both revenue decelerate as IDFA issues, recession issues, competitive issues all hit at once. The costs for the social apps are increasing in order to better adapt to changing times, which means that there's now profitability pressures on the business. And Sheryl Sandberg, the longtime and talented COO, is now leaving. And so this has led Meta to announce that it's cutting spending in its reality labs by several billion dollars. And as a result, it's instituting a hiring freeze across the company, cutting a bunch of projects, delaying AR devices, and very likely cutting back its scope and ambition among the more metaverse-oriented projects in the near term. So in effect, Meta's issue was strategic focus, but the hard times might actually be forcing that focus. And now it's an open question of whether leadership can make the right decisions on what it decides to trim and what it decides to focus on. And in my opinion, and this is the the last thing I'll say before I hand it over, um, I think Meta is wise to focus less on the extreme vertical integration side of things and more on building the critical infrastructure standards and software that serves the broader ecosystem. That doesn't mean it's still, like it can't still push forward the 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 hardware market and be its own number one customer, especially early on. But there's going to be a ton of value in building those open source standards, social apps, UGC functionality, et cetera, that underpin the entire VR movement, no matter the hardware. And if you think about it, that's more or less what they did with social, um, but with some actual hardware platform presence um, this time around. So uh, enough of me. My, my, my question to kick it off to both of you is... Um, what do you think, and then we can discuss games after this. Um, uh, I'm just curious, what do you think Meta should focus on when it comes to reality labs now that they have like much more real constraints to operate with? And I'm curious whether you agree with me that you know not going on going crazy on the extreme vertical integration and kind of building more app software standards for the the broader VR ecosystem uh, is is the right call. Oh, I have, I have a few opinions, but Sadi, I like the, the the layout you provided. That's very helpful. Thank you. It's um, so I tend to I'm I'm rather skeptical of every and all of this, and and the reason I say that is because you know, and you point out correctly, there's a lot of economic woes. There's a sort of a weird timing for all this to emerge. I uh, I blame uh, Zuckerberg's sort of midlife crisis to come around and say like, okay, well, we missed out on mobile. We don't want to miss out on VR. So let's go extra hard. It's like, you have no business here, right? It's like, uh, this, this might not, you might not be the leader for this, but so you see decisions being made at a high end. 
Whereas, like, yeah, you have the budget, um, but increasingly it's going to be harder to justify these things. And so the moment there is any kind of pressure on revenue, innovation is the first thing usually to get cut or to get downsized. And that should really be the lifeblood of the company, right? So, so it's a twofold answer. It's like, I'm not entirely sure that this is the leadership team that should be running it, uh, but also, uh, you know, is this really the way you should be expanding your uh, your your expenditure in innovation right now, not decreasing it. So for those two reasons, I think it's, uh, you know, there's a few question marks around it. And then for what comes out of it itself, it's, you know, so I, so I spent the last two days at this thing here in New York at uh, NFT NYC. And we could talk about that in a moment um, uh, because that's a whole other uh, story. But the metaverse and this, promise of some meta layer of reality and how VR is going to play into it. So many companies and people seem to have already made up their mind that this is a, an absolute reality, that it's going to happen, that it's going to be here, that's going to be amazing. And it's, you know, arguably that's true. I don't know. I don't really care if that's true. What's interesting to me is that it's the same conversation we had 20 years ago about the, you know, information superhighway. And so this ongoing narrative of like new technology being always some kind of solution for things right that they call it the solutionism where like this new thing is gonna that's gonna change everything it, you know few, few people actually stop to ask if anybody wants this so i like genvit's efforts uh, i know jacob well like where they try to find very distinct use cases of putting lots of people together and like see what happens and then you have some actual results as opposed to we're going to build this enormous infrastructure and then if we build it, they will come sort of, that's the assumption seemingly. And I, what I'm missing is like really sort of like, um, you know, a clear cut example or series of examples where you can imagine your mother to jump into this with both feet, right? And it's just, I'm, I'm not feeling that here. And so it's a lot of moving of chairs, but there's no real restaurant coming together here for me just yet. I was gathering my thoughts as, as you were walking, walking us through it. So I absolutely agree in terms of the lack of financial pressure, potentially just not creating that focus. And this is a good opportunity to, you understand you have to cut costs and you have to make difficult decisions and prioritize. I, I personally believe that Meta should focus on their strengths and not trying to build out hardware, to be honest. I find that they're trying, I, I find that by building the hardware, they're trying to create this market to then put people into their products. But if you look at the margins that you have in terms of hardware production, how you plan and design R&D and do, you know, factory production shipments, that just feels, that's just a very different business line to what, what Facebook, you know, prior to Meta was very successful at doing. So if I look at what, what Facebook's strengths were is bringing people together that knew each other, connecting people that used to know, bringing people together that have shared, shared interests and create new friendships, ad networks, um, content creation, and connecting people with content that, that interests them. And I've, I do believe that Facebook or Meta pursuing, trying to build software and apps for this metaverse makes sense for them because that's, that was their strength and they can be part of building what, what comes next in, in, in technology. So I would, I, I would 
expect them to focus more on the software and apps and also trying to maximize the revenue generators, like being able to create ad networks into this metaverse. I honestly, I'm, I'm a skeptic of VR in general. You know, I think there was some, some do you rumors. own any of the devices? Do you, do no. you have one? I heard Not rumors even. that Tencent might be exploring extended reality and we see Niantic exploring AR. And mm -hmm. personally, I am more of a believer in terms of common extended reality or AR that overlaps our two realities. I just, you know, maybe it's me and I can't take my my day to day and my preferences for what the world <laughs> likes. I just don't see any future where I'd want to go home, put this heavy headset on my head and just be alone interacting in a digital world. I, I just don't know if VR will ever hit mass market. Yeah, I think that's a... Uh... That's kind of the big question. So I am, I am sympathetic to why uh, Meta would want to kind of push into new directions because they're basically tapped out on what they can do with social apps. Like just mm -hmm. <laughs> regulators won't let them like buy anything else, um, which is a pretty big hindrance when you know there are just generationally new social apps that that pop up. And so it makes sense that they would want to shift somewhere. And I think, um, I, I mean, I like that they're spending a lot of money to kind of innovate on hardware and things. I think it, it is pulling forward the future a bit. Um, but yeah, I, I think the big question with VR specifically is, you know, is, is the end game for VR going to be more like video game consoles where, you know, they sell like, you know, a hundred million um, at scale. And I think, you know, right now VR, it's probably more like 10 million. So, uh, an order of magnitude less than what, what the console market is right now. Um, or is it going to be more like smartphones where, you know, smartphones are in every pocket, you know, there'll be VR in every household. Um, and I, yeah, I think that's a big open question, but it's, it's kind of a, a an important one for a company like, meta that's so huge that's worth hundreds of billions of dollars to kind of tap into whatever the next enormous market is going to be i also sympathize with like them wanting to kind of accelerate the future by investing and in, in hardware and i'm kind of glad that they cut back on their own custom chips and things like that um, i kind of hope it ends up more to the point where it is maybe a bit more like the microsoft model um where you know they they kind of innovate on hardware and stuff initially to be their own number one customer to kind of force the market to move to adapt and um just adopt the technology a bit sooner than it would have otherwise but ultimately end up you know the way microsoft software serves and they still create their own hardware but they serve a ton of different manufacturers and things i kind of hope that's what happens happens here and who knows what the heck is going to happen with um meta and ar i don't think there's no reason to to be optimistic because they haven't shown anything yet um, and they don't really have the same advantages that like an Apple would. But yeah, I'm just really curious to see um, where that's all going to go um, and how they continue. I do think as these constraints tighten, we will start to see a bit more clarity in how they talk about the strategy in the upcoming quarters, which will be interesting to maybe pop back and discuss. But maybe before um, moving on, to the to the final topic i kind of wanted to hit on the game side a little bit um i guess both with vr but even just facebook um more more generally um 
So, so recently, um, Meta bought a company called Unit2 Games, which is building like a social-oriented UGC platform called Krata. And my guess was just that they would have tried to buy Roblox if regulators, you know, <laughs> would have let it, but they couldn't. So they bought um, basically like knockoff Roblox. Um, and then um, second, you know, uh, Yoast mentioned, you know, they've been supporting uh, what Genvid is doing with Miles, massive interactive live events. Um and most recently in like a community Pac-Man experience. So uh, kind of my question um, for this, and maybe we can move on, is like, is is what Facebook is doing with games, both in VR and on its platforms, is it substance or is it noise? Like, do you think it's ever really going to matter um, for this company? And if it does matter, like what actually is the path to it making a difference for this business versus just being a perpetual side plot big one uh, so the creation of first party content which is really what they're trying to do for any platform long term is critical right for that same reason Microsoft and Sony they all have their own stuff Apple continues to make terrible television shows but that's because they recognize that that's the what what they're great I love Apple TV okay fine mixed reviews <laughs> on Apple TV but it's you know, but they're not not top two. It's not they they haven't hit their Game of Thrones moment just yet. Yeah, yeah. So in other words, you know, platforms or these these kind of companies like a Google, like a Facebook or Meta, uh, and so on. They they rely for a large part on third party content providers, right? In the same way that a console or a platform holder in gaming does so, but game makers, you see that everywhere else. And then over time, they recognize the need to build their own and invest in their own. What they've learned in 2004, 2005, was that you needed the Zynga to come up with the cool games. Like Farmville was the application that kept people on the canvas longer. You could sell ads against it. Great, everybody wins. And then you just open it up, you make it available, you invite lots of people to make games, and you create all of the social connective, connective tissue that makes it so that your timeline is now just everybody that your mom knows asking you to help with their farm. And then, of course, you scale it back, but you navigate and you manage that part of the process. You don't make content yourself. They kind of missed the boat on mobile and then caught up. Okay, fine. They kind of, they, they, they fixed that. What you see with this, with this ARVR conversation around Meta, is that they're very aggressively trying to own the space. Like they're sort of you know, colonizing it before, it's even, before they've even arrived. And that's a you know, distinct, I think, manifestation of a platform that's very aware of the fact that if they're not first, then they're going to be last, right? I mean, if, if let's say Google figures this out, they're hosed because they would immediately lose their market value. If, if Apple somehow beats them to this, which they conceivably could, right? They have a better uh, history when it comes to hardware design and consumer applications. Uh, you know, Meta might be devalued significantly in a, in a publicly traded context because people are like, well, you clearly don't know nothing about the future because this other company just took it from you. So it's really this race, this sort of space race, but it's around VR, it's sort of a, a virtual space race, if you will. And that's, I think, what drives most of the decision making. They should be investing in the same way that Sony and Nintendo do that in first party content that's really exciting, that's really meaningful, that has deep immersive experiences. And then that be sort of have that be sort of like the high bar that everybody else gets compared to. And right now, I'm seeing none of it. Like, I mean, again, you know, and this is not because uh, I'm favorable to Genvid, but 
And I, I should say, mention full disclosure, I'm connected to Makers Fund and they're an investor in Genvid, but I also, I've known Jacob for years, so it's, it's a friendly thing, just the same. You know, they are doing something new, something different, like a new space should afford new forms of interaction. And, and there are very few examples of that, right? And, and sort of, and is Facebook or is Meta then the company that's going to come up with this? Or should they subsidize or help other companies do this? So that's the broader question that I use to look at this. But it's a really good, it's a really good question, like how this plays out. I'm, I'm very curious to see. I, I feel like it's a lot of noise to your, to your question. I, I think it makes sense that Facebook want to, sorry, Meta, wants to create a space where people come to hang out, be with each other, create content. That's what Facebook was. They built a platform where people would go and, and create and socialize. So I, I think it makes a lot of sense that they're trying to create that. Not because that's how they're going to make money, but because that's how they then make money with their additional services, just like you know, Facebook makes money from from the ads. So I think I think it makes sense as as a strategy, and I believe they made the right move in um, acquiring, I believe it's Unit Two, the, the makers of um, Krata, because I was reading the acquisition announcement, and they were discussing how they're going to merge the two teams and try to build the next UGC. So I, I believe there might be something happening behind closed doors where they are trying to build the successor to Krata that will create the base, the baseline of the metaverse that would be, that would be meta. One, one question that I, I have, especially looking at the avatars and the design direction that they're taking is, are they being too realistic? Are they doing enough user research and understanding the audience that wants to be in the in this space? Because do you want to go to the metaverse to be yourself, to see your world? Or do you want to go to the metaverse and hang out because you can be someone you're not and be in a more fantastic sci-fi? Just you don't see just fellow humans walking around in their normal clones. Mm. My my guess is both, and it just depends on the context. Um, and so like, uh, they, they showcased like, a like a really interesting, like workplace tool where like, you know, instead of being on, on zoom, you can kind of be like in VR, but kind of like in like a conference room with each other, with your avatars and things. And you can still like see your screen and, you know, have presentations and things like that. And that was kind of cool. Uh, but you know, like in like a business setting, you wouldn't want to be like I don't know a unicorn or something. Um, Would you but, not? Well, I don't know. You you can, Maria. If we ever go that way, I'd be disappointed um, if you didn't. But um, but of course, in a bunch of other settings, like yeah, I mean the whole concept of identity and things like that. Like it doesn't have to be the same in digital worlds as it is in the physical world. There's like a wider creative surface area that you can tap into. My 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 thought is just that like. If if this company is serious about like really leading and helping pioneer whatever the metaverse is going to be, um, gaming is probably at the tip of the spear of like helping like figure out what like the early use cases are for like getting people in and interacting with each other and just doing things. Um, and I told I think I agree with you so that like first party content makes sense for probably for VR just to kind of kickstart that ecosystem, make more killer apps. Um, but otherwise, yeah, I think I agree with you, Maria, that like, it is like, like social apps are UGC, um, generated and 
you know, whatever they do and, you know, more metaverse things. Like, it definitely should have a component. I don't know how bullish I am on, like, the acquisition of Unit 2 games. Mm -hmm. I just, I think it's like, I mean, they're buying, like, uh, someone who's already kind of behind what has been built with Roblox and and others. Um, But again, they have resources. But it's, again, it goes back to that resourcing and focus question. Like, where do you focus to get the most, you know, the most upside on your investment. And I still, like, I don't think they figured it out, um, but I kind of hope that they get smarter about it soon. Mm. I love how I, uh, we're doing great segues between each topic. We, so I'm, we're doing excellent segues. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> yes, we have, you know, five minutes left for your topic. <laughs> no, that's fine, that's fine. It's, I, I, wanna, I wanna invoke uh, Nick Yee. So, so to your point, there's a book called The Proteus Paradox. And, you know, the 30 second summary goes like this. This is a MMORPG social scientist who just collected reams of data on World of Warcraft. Long time ago, it was him and Nicolas Ducheneau, if I say it correctly. And they just look at lots of data, lots of profiles that build these consumer profiles. And the Proteus paradox is like, you know, Proteus, this, this godlike, uh, this, uh, this mythological character, has the ability to turn and change himself into anything and everything. And so the idea that we enter these metaverses is that, oh, and then I'm going to see what it's like to have this wildly different experience. As a white, middle-aged, you know, dude, I'm going to know what it's like to be a young black girl or something. Like, like I'm going to be able to have this wide range of experiences. And his finding is that most people bring all of their real-world biases right with them into the virtual world. And so you can have a whole social scientific conversation around that about what does that mean culturally and do we really understand each other better? But mostly just from a business model perspective, you say like, well, it's going to be more of the same shit, right? And so so the idea that it's going to be vastly different, I challenge that constantly because it's 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 it won't be. It won't be that, you know, we're part of a much larger conversation. And this is the point where I'll segue into my topic immediately, um, which is so often do we feel that there is a fair comparison to be made with the printing press. Right? Okay, the printing press came out, whatever, centuries ago, and it sort of took away the power of reading and writing from the church in Europe, and now everybody could sort of learn to read. But that had to happen. People spent you know, centuries learning to read. Like re- Quiet reading in a corner was like this odd behavior that was very suspicious to people. Like, what are you doing over there? I'm reading. Yeah, you're reading something inappropriate, or it's some, some weird behavior, as opposed to an oral cult- culture where, like a podcast, we talk and we interact, we look at each other, we riff off each other's ideas. And so that transition is very meaningful, but it also took a really long time. We tend to kind of uh, truncate all of what came before us is sort of like, oh, there's a 30-second Wikipedia entry, and now we know everything there is to know, and here's the next thing, here's 2.0, or reality 2.0, or here's the next version. It's just like the printing press. So the topic that I pushed forward today and is, um, is an exhibition in Dusseldorf. I, a few, like about a month ago, I was in Munich. I met a whole bunch of people there. Uh, two that stand out were uh, Mr. Hans Ulrich Obrist, who is this big deal art collector and curator, who's putting together this exhibit, uh, who was basically fascinated by this idea of world building. So he's been looking into video games as sort of the art form for the 21st century, uh, in the same way that movies were the art form for the 20th century, and uh, the novel was the art form for the 19th century and so on. And so if you can crudely 
describe every uh, hundred years by way of looking at one form of entertainment expression or media. The games seem to make a pretty strong case right now, I, I believe that. So it's interesting then to kind of broaden in my mind, just, just to do the exercise, to not just hear what Mark Zuckerberg has to say about all this, but also look at like, what do, what do the artists out there do with this stuff? You know, uh, the, so the other person I met there was uh, Rafik Anadol, this uh, data artist. It's the nicest guy. And he makes these overwhelming, you know, installations of like deep data-driven organic artworks. You should check out some of the stuff he does. And he's like this really just humble, pious person. I quizzed him a bit on Unreal Engine 5. It's like, okay, how big of a deal is this, right? So now that we have a much more powerful tool that allows us this high definition stuff, like how does that impact your team? How does it impact, you know, digital art? He's like, this massive shift. It's going to change dramatically everything. For the same reason that YouTubers suddenly could make their own movies. And, you know, digital platforms allow you to publish your own music or on these podcasts. Like it which is not to say it's a democratization of things, but it's much lower barriers to entry. And it's going to just in sheer volume shift how we experience it, how we express inside of it and so on. So that's kind of where I sit with this. Like the notion that we should think a little broader about not just what you know big tech has to say about this, because I don't think that they're the most innovative ones. When I, when some of the, um, some of the artists that work, that have exhibits on this uh, world building uh, exposition, they look, for instance, to uh, you know build a metaverse and say, okay, what body do I want to wear today? And so you can have these experiences, which is very different than what you'll expect from like a Google. Like Google's never making that shit, right? But I do think that that's a conversation worth having because the the, the catchphrase in all of this is like a, a a new space only achieves its true potential if it offers new behaviors inside of it, and until then, it's just more of the same. And so I really want to question, like, is this going to be more the same? Is this going to be, uh, you know, basically just a 3D version of The Office? Like, we're already getting Wendy's food chain experiences. Like, I don't fucking want to make my own burritos. Like, get out of here. But that's what these corporations are making for us. So is that the most exciting? Like, how do we get the ghost into the machine? Like, what's the soul of the metaverse is, I guess, maybe the question to really uh, put it bluntly. And I'm curious what your thoughts are. Like, like, what is it that you've seen in any of its manifestations around the metaverse that really invoked you or that really moved you in a meaningful way in the same way that music does or movies or, you know, maybe you're not into classical music, but there's a one piece that always makes you cry or whatever. Like, wh what's an example of that? And I have not found any of it. And that's, that's kind of where my question sits. Go. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question. Um, um, I, I guess I would say like, it is more of like, it is the corners of like UGC that I think like have like interesting potential and like, you know, the power of the, the internet too is it's like about the democratization of creativity. Um, and so, you know, like the big companies and such, they can create the emerging platforms and tools that enable that democratization. But, you know, the, it's, you know, now the fact that everyone has a chance to be immersed in art, as well as the opportunity to create it for others every single day, um, that is really interesting. Um, and so, you know, well, I don't even know what to technically classify as the metaverse or not. But, you know, I mean, I've seen like interesting, um, like projects, <laughs> you know, just people kind of trolling, but doing like interesting, innovative things like in places like VR chat or Rec Room or, you know, Roblox and 
and and such or you know you could even look at like you know what nvidia is doing in their omniverse which is completely different but you know building more of like a real-time um collaboration way to work in like 3d environments um and i don't know if any of that has like you know moved me to tears or humor the same way that like you know movies or like you know great tv shows have but you know you see the I think there are plenty of corners of the internet where you can start to see that uh, creativity start to take off and start to develop and those communities form in around in interesting ways. So I think it's there. I think it's just very early that it hasn't, you know, a lot of that hasn't broken into the mainstream yet. So we're kind of at the awkward phase where, you know, a lot of like the headlines that kind of hit the market, you know, it's about like X company partnering with Roblox to you know, do something strange that no one asked for. And, you know, maybe it's interesting. I don't, I don't know, but it's not like the same kind of organic, you know, bottoms up, like building something brand new and really interesting that is purely from passion that is going to move people. But I think it'll happen. It just takes time, time to get there. Mm-hmm. Right. Maria, you feel the same? Um, I do agree that it will come. But it will only come if we protect smaller companies that are exploring the fringes and not allow big companies to acquire them when they see something of interest and then bring them into their corporate corporate structure and start stifling that creativity into making more risk-free products. And I believe that that's why fintech was able to advance so quickly. Fintech was the first I believe exploring blockchain and bringing that about. And we have all of these digital banks and uh, easy access and great UX. And I, I believe in grand part that's, that's because there's a lot of regulation and banks weren't able or weren't interested in taking on that risk and acquiring these, these fintech companies. And I just hope that we see that not only in games, but in technology in general. So yeah, I, believe, I believe it's still to come. I'm really sorry, but we have to we have to end the episode. Oh. Go for okay. it. Okay. All right, fine. Oh. <laughs> no, this is great. Thank you for for having me. It's a it's my first time, so I'll take full responsibility for any mistakes and lack of homework. No, uh, gosh, pro- you're great. I hope you but join I us really, again. I, yeah. I uh, I very much enjoyed this. Um. Yeah. So I, I should have left more left more time. So. If you want to continue the discussion, you can find us on Navix Discord. You can also subscribe to the free uh, Navix Digest, which is a newsletter. We recently made public the Axie Infinity Part 2 essay that was first released on Navix Pro. It's now accessible to everyone. So if you're interested in following the story, go and take a read. And if you enjoy it, well, we have a promo code in the show notes if you want to become a, a member of Navix Pro. Uh, Yos, thanks for joining us for the first time. And thanks, Aaron. We'll see you next week.